In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. This is Christ the King Sunday, and the question on all of our minds on this day is, where is Jesus? (laughs) Is he in heaven? Is he on earth? Is he in our hearts to be apprehended by faith? Or is he coming to us from a great distance to appear in sight? Now the focus for the last few Sundays has been on the kingdom of Christ, which is not a place, it is a state of being. It is that condition in which Christ as ruler will be perceived by all in which Christ's rulership will be acknowledged and in which Christ's imprint will be stamped upon not just our souls, but this world. The mood of kingdom season, however, far from being celebratory entirely, is serious because the theme is weighty, even grave. With the coming of Christ as king, comes also the concept of judgment. When we come to face Christ, we will give an account of ourselves, first and foremost, in terms of how we have lived out the kingship, the pattern of life that Jesus Christ would have us live. So the vision that we see here, there, and everywhere today is Christ the King, sitting in judgment. Our collect has very much placed that judgment seat, which is also a throne, in heaven. Our hymn placed Jesus in our hearts and then reminded us that though he may be in heaven, he's also paradoxically coming our way and we'd better be ready. Today in our reading, Christ before Pilate, we are presented with a paradox, however. Christ himself put on trial by a world on trial, a cosmos whose eternal destiny hangs in the balance of the scales of justice, of a divine judgment. Wherever Christ meets us, then, there is going to be a reckoning to give. It will be judgment day. Now, the image I get is of a checkpoint, if you like, Passport control, perhaps, as it is called in so many of the world's international air terminals. The endpoints or termini of our travels, the places where we make our way to our, in this case, metaphorically, ultimate destination. We stand in waiting, we wait to check out, knowing at every moment unseen eyes are checking us out. There is anxiety. Will our paperwork work? Will there be problems with our identity? We shuffle slowly forward, all the while under surveillance and all the while suppressing the growing ache at the core of our being. I've got to get out of this place. We say this to ourselves as we approach our rendezvous with the inspector and out of the corner of our eye, we notice a whole flood of diplomats 
all with laptops and diplomatic passports, led by a diminutive Middle Eastern man with bandaged hands and feet who is slipping past us in the other way, making his way to earth, if you like, even as we are heading in the opposite direction. Going back to a world we are leaving, which is a world that has been occupied by hostile forces, a world that is even now going up in smoke. Ahead for us, the crystalline clarity of life in the heights. The air is pure. The clouds are firm enough for us to set our harps on, the harps we hung here on the willow trees. Yet there also lurks the unthinkable, the other possibility, life down under where the air is thick with smoke and the smell of burning sulfur. Yes, as we await our judgment, we hope and pray that our passports are in order. But whatever lies our head, the smoke and smell of burning at our heels impels us onward. And so the checkout line snakes its way. Although I have gamely tried to leaven this image of judgment, I believe my little excursus prevents us with a fair picture of what judgment day, judgment day conjures in us. First of all, it's all about us, you and I, up against it, as it were, at the time when there's no going back and the options ahead are limited. Life at 50,000 feet or death at five feet under. We hope that our passport's in order and that we have been careful not to blot their pages with too many misadventures in Vegas. But we are getting out of this place one way or another. Got to get out of this place. That's the image that we have. I think it very interesting, however, to contemplate that the hearers of Jesus' time would have heard all these readings in a very different way. Instead of allowing themselves to be suspended up in the clouds, no matter what is going on up there, they would have had a very clear sense that what was going on in the clouds was coming their way. Listen to this. The God of the universe, the Holy Great One, will come forth from his dwelling. And from there he will march upon Mount Sinai and appear in his camp, emerging from heaven with a mighty power. Behold, he will arrive with ten million of the holy ones in order to execute judgment upon all. If that quote sounds vaguely familiar, I really do commend you. If you know exactly where it is to be found, I will invite you to turn to that place in your pew Bibles. Of course, you will not be able to find it there, not even in your Bibles, which are always on Sunday left at home. Why? Because the quote is from the book of Enoch, a Jewish work that was composed in the last few centuries before Christ. But what the apparently uninspired author has put into words is the very inspired expectation that filled the air at the time when Jesus was being taken before Pilate. The expectation was this, that Yahweh, God the Lord, would return from heaven to fill the temple on top of Mount Zion once again with his presence, his Shekinah glory. That this Messiah would return from heaven, this king, to lead the heavenly host in a decisive victory against the pagans, the nations, that would be Rome, that both Yahweh and his anointed, if there are two, 
would then be enthroned to reign forever over not just a redeemed Israel, but a, through Israel, redeemed earth. High expectations. Well, the kingdom is coming, as is the king. But it will mean judgment, not blessing, for Israel. We shall see. So Pilate called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it about to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have you delivered you over to me. The king has returned to his kingdom. Yahweh has returned to Jerusalem. The temple stands ready to be inhabited. The thrones of which Ezekiel spoke in exile, taken up by Daniel, are there. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. But who is sitting there already on those thrones? And who is now going to execute judgment of their own on Israel's king, who, indeed, all the while awaiting deliverance from Roman rule, is preparing to turn this same king over to these same Romans for execution. It gets very thick now. Israel has a king, and he's called Herod. He's working very nicely with the Romans to maintain a status quo which has very little to do with the expectation at the heart of most of the people of occupied uh, Judea. He is indeed at this moment that the king is being presented to Pilate conspiring with the Romans to turn this same king over, not to enthronement in the temple, but to judgment and execution on a hill outside. Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me, says Pilate. And how many parables have warned of just this same thing coming? And it has come, and it has gone. Jesus died and risen, and the temple raised, and it is raised still, its ruins buried beneath the foundation of a mosque, which now crowns the Temple Mount, even as Islamic rockets are raining on Tel Aviv. All this has happened, in other words. It has come to pass. We read here and we think it is yet to come, in our hearing, a kind of second coming. But we forget that everything Jesus predicted has already indeed come to pass. The calamity, the judgment, the vindication has been wrought on just and unjust in like. And it came about in 70 AD when the temple was torn down. And the church has carried on. We see judgment indeed, where we should see hope. We are so transfixed on the impending judgment, our trip to the clouds to face Jesus and confess all our personal sins, and we cling to the hope that we shall escape it, that we miss the point of Jesus' message and of his ministry and of his mission. Once again, that same question shall be asked of us as was asked of them, of Israel. Not, have you saved yourself from this world, but have you saved the world? Have you, Israel, brought the world to salvation, or have you saved yourselves from this world, waiting for me to summon you up to the clouds? 
When Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world, if my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. His point is that Jesus' kingdom does not come from this world. It does not originate in the evil and rebellion against God, which characterizes this world. Jesus denies that his kingdom has a this-worldly origin. He does not deny that his kingdom has a this-worldly destination. His kingdom doesn't come from this world, but it comes for this world. Of that you can be sure. And for that, he has come into the world himself, and he will send his followers, and we are among them. And we are among them. Our story starts here too, right here. In Pilate's judgment of Jesus, which is Jesus' judgment of Pilate. For Pilate, truth belongs to those in power. How postmodern he is. Truth is something defined by the victors. Your ability to have your will, to have your way, is what kingship is all about. Accordingly, those of captive Israel are captive still. They saw themselves as an end in themselves, and now they are an end in themselves. They are at an end. No, they are at the end. So Pilate said to him, you are a king? Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Israel is in flight, or ready to fight, or somewhere in between, trying to make do. Israel is still in denial of its failure to live out Jesus, God's command, save the world. Israel stands where we in the church stand as well, here in the West. For them, there were three options, quietist, which means you take flight, take refuge in the caves at Qumran or North Dakota, get some razor wire and some German shepherds, or if you can't do that, you take flight inwardly. Adopting a dualist rejection of the world, you keep the kingdom and your little world separate. You keep your head down, say your prayers, keep pure, keep holy, and wait for God to do what God is going to do. If you don't do that, you take the activist way, that of the zealots. You take up arms, take to the hills at Masada. That is illegal and not very successful. We do not advocate that, of course, but that's fight. If you can't do that, you become a compromiser. You make the best of both worlds. You play the world's game the world's way, as did all those who shared their priestly and legal power with the Romans. I think we in the church, mit, max, mix and match all of those three streams to suit whatever the occasion and our circumstance present to us. But these are three ways of living on the losing side, and they're all going to bring us and them to the same place of judgment. They're going to put us on the defensive and make us reactive and not active. Where are we? We have to step out in faith and in action. Jesus' mission, our mission, is just that, mission. We are sent into a world that is bristling, 
outwardly, hostile and weary and wary of us and our claims, but inwardly, away from dogmatic dialectics and moral imperatives, inwardly at the level of being and essence, a world of those born like us with a heart for God and for the love of God, a world where a memory of God's love abides deep within, in a core that is encircled by a crown of razor wire, original sin. Not who we are, but by confining us, rededicating us as rebels to God, defining what we can be. Yes, we have sin at our core. Let me stress, however, we are not essentially made of sin. We are God's good creation, we and everyone else who is brought into this world. But sin, which is waiting not just at the door, but just inside the door, is always with us, infecting us at the deepest level. It is not what we are, but it has its sight on what we become, unless, unless, like captive Israel, our King Jesus is enthroned in our hearts once again, severs that razor wire once and for all. O come, O come, Emmanuel, we shall sing next Sunday, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. No, it's not Advent yet, but the Son of God has appeared, and where Israel failed and still awaits ransom, the church, the true inheritor of the promise made to Abraham, carries on. Here in the West, we falter. Our own prosperity has savaged us. The so-called savages to whom we once took the gospel now bring Jesus back to us. As king, we at all souls owe them our existence and our identity as Anglican Christians. They have helped lead us out of exile. May we now do the same for our own captive people. This is our mission. This is the one point of all of this. Our mission is now to our own people, to our own children. The world around us is changing. You'll hear this again and again. It's changing. But for us, the church, this is the best of good news. Because this gives us the chance to make that good news clear and fresh and irresistible. It gives us the chance to free ourselves from that complicity with the trappings of power and offer a gospel that works its power in weakness, that brings weakened, defeated people, bowed by sin and discouraged by a world which has gone on its own way, back to a strength that can only be found in God. Yes, God is coming to judge the world and to judge us. And he will judge us for what we have done to bring his message of hope to the world. But there is still time, and every power in earth, in heaven, in God's gracious kingdom is with us and for us, behind us and before us, if we will take those steps to share God's love with those who do not know it. Amen.